Leviticus 16. If you'd like to open your Bibles there. I was asked a few minutes ago, will there be any oozing tonight? <laughs> the answer to that question is only one kind, actually. <laughs> Where we dealt with all kinds of bodily issues in the last chapter, just one tonight. The oozing of blood. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. By the way, that word presence we've talked about before, it's panim, and it's the face of the Lord. That I really do believe what took place, what happened, the reason why they were so severely judged is Nadab and Abihu actually went into the Holy of Holies, or at least were headed that way, fully intending to go inside the veil right into the face of the Lord. And, of course, they died. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And Lord, as we enter in now to our study of Leviticus 16 and this amazingly significant, solemn remembrance, this day that you put on the calendar for the people of Israel, this day you called a perpetual statute, Lord, I pray that you'll give us a deep comprehension of what's going on here and how it applies and, and what's taking place. I pray, Father, first and foremost for the interpretation, the correct interpretation of your word. But we invite you, Holy Spirit, then to make application of these things into our lives. Inspire us, Lord, motivate us, move in us to be those who truly can say, as we just sang, you are all we're after. You are all that matters. We are listening. Spirit of the living God, would you please come and teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the most holy day on the Jewish calendar. Of all the feasts of Israel, seven in particular, and we're gonna get to that in Leviticus 23. We're gonna go through the feasts of Israel, and it's fascinating and it is prophetic. But of all those feasts, of all those remembrances, the most significant, most reverent is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And with all due respect to Torah law and to Judaism in general, it is a remembrance that is in reality a shadow of the substance. And the true substance we're taught, the Hebrew pastor, we don't even have to guess, tells us in Hebrews chapter nine, and if you've got your Bible, why don't you stick your finger in Leviticus 16 and race over to the other end of your Bibles, the book of Hebrews near the end of the New Testament, and look at Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. The Hebrew pastor says there, and if you're not there, that's okay, just keep going, you'll get there, and, and we're gonna stay there for a minute. Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared, a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
The context here is Yom Kippur. And again, the Hebrew pastor is saying Yom Kippur finds its fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the parallel, and that's what you wanna keep in mind as we go through the whole thing tonight. The illustration, the shadow, if you were, or if you will, is Yom Kippur. The substance is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. More than anything else, Yom Kippur is a precursor to the cross. If you'll skip down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. Let's let the Hebrew pastor teach us for a bit. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, that's Yom Kippur, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. Hey, if Yom Kippur worked the first time, they never would have repeated it. It wouldn't have needed to go on and on as a perpetual statute. But verse three, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not taken or have you taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first Yom Kippur in order to establish the second, which is the new covenant in his blood through the crucifixion. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And I remember, remind you again what God said to Peter up on the rooftop. Reindeer didn't pause, it was just Peter up there. Up on the rooftop, God said, Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. I've repeated that now. This is the third teaching where I've repeated that verse. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy because there are far too many Christians cleansed by the blood of Christ who still consider themselves unholy. And in so considering, act unholy. Hey, you've been made clean. Act like it. You've been made clean in Jesus. Embrace that, that is our reality. Well, skip now back to Leviticus 16. That's the undergirding truth of this whole thing, where we're going, what we're studying tonight, that Yom Kippur is a precursor to the crucifixion of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished at that time. Picking up in verse four, Aaron shall put on the linen, holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. What are you wearing this Christmas season? What's your go-to? According to one source, and I didn't, source, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this, but. One source says the fashion trends for 2020 are as follows. Sweatshirts, hoodies, joggers, t-shirts, knit hats, and leggings. 
<laughs> Why? Because people aren't going anywhere. We're staying in. Tell you what, tonight we went out. Oh, I can't share this. I promised my wife I wouldn't tell anything personal tonight. <laughs> ah, she won't mind this one. She said to me last week, Rick, if you have to ask if it's personal, you already have your answer. <laughs> so, no, we went down and grabbed some sandwiches tonight for dinner. Cheryl had on her leggings and sweatshirt. Why? Because she wasn't going inside. And this is how people are dressing. The fashion choice for the Jewish people today on Yom Kippur is very interesting to me. They will dress in white. In fact, many will wear what's called a kittle. A kittle, I mentioned this one of the services on Sunday, it's Yiddish for a white robe with a sash. You can look them up on Amazon, buy yourself a kittle if you'd like to dress that way this coming Sunday. But in Jewish tradition, they would put on this white robe with the sash, sometimes it's collared, and they would wear this on Yom Kippur. Why? Because the kittle reminds them, number one, that they're a priestly nation. We're a priestly nation, and like the priestly garb of the linen with the sash and the linen turban. We dress in something similar to remind ourselves we are a priestly nation. Well, here's the thing. They were supposed to be a priestly nation. Didn't work out so well. So ultimately, God created or developed the priestly tribe of Levi because the people as a whole were not priestly. It was God's original desire that Israel be a nation of priests to the world. That like Levi is to Israel, all Israel would have been for all mankind, but it didn't work out. But still, they'll wear the kittle thinking, well, it's, it's, it reminds us of our priestly heritage. Some say they wear the kittle because it makes them look like angels. If you read in Ezekiel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10, there's a particular angel in both visions, an angel dressed in linen. I'm convinced, and we've talked about these things and looked at them previously, that it is a pre-incarnate Jesus that is the man dressed in linen, the angelic presence, the malach, the messenger in linen. But they say, well, it makes us look like angels, so we'll wear the linen. Another reason it's worn is the kittle signifies purity. Purity, a pure white garment, and if they can get it, a white linen garment, all the better. The problem is the Hebrew prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse six, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Filthy, edim in the Hebrew means unclean blood stained. That is stained by unclean blood. And what's interesting to me is that the kittle for all of this is also used as a burial shroud. And that seems most appropriate. And again, I mean no offense to my Jewish friends. But the reality is the kittle misses the point. The point of the white, the point of the priest, the high priest here, putting on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments and the linen sash and the linen turban, all linen. It, 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 the point was he was clothed with simplicity. Jot that down. I'm gonna give you six or seven things to jot down tonight. If you're a note taker and going through this study, number one, the high priest was clothed with simplicity. This is not the normal garb, the normal vestments, if you will, of the high priest. If you skip ahead to verse 32, it says the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place. So these are the sons of Aaron, the high priest down the line. Every high priest is to do the same thing as Aaron. 
shall make atonement, he shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments. That's amazing. I would have thought the holy garments started with the gold crown. That's a holy garment, right? Or perhaps that, that multicolored ephod with the onyx stone shoulder pads, very 80s, with the gold filigree of all the 12 tribes of Israel written in. And that, that's holy, right? Isn't that holy? Or perhaps that breast piece with the 12 precious stones also representing the tribes of Israel. There's holy. The blue robe, which went under all that. That blue robe with the precious little gold bells all the way around the hem and, and the artistic pomegranates, the robe itself with a blue, scarlet, and purple hem. By the way, I gotta pause for a second. I have to make a correction. And the correction is, and I don't know if I said this when we were looking at the holy garments before. I may have. It's something I've always just assumed and I have just yesterday been proven wrong just in studying through and thinking about these things. It can happen and none of you caught me on it. So <laughs> you're in this with me. I've said previously that the bells on the hem of the high priest's robe were there so you could hear the high priest moving about inside the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. They could hear him moving and know he was still alive. Problem is, the robe was never worn inside the veil. Never. On Yom Kippur, the high priest set aside that blue robe with the golden bells and pomegranates. He set aside the ephod. He set aside the breastpiece, even the gold plate. All of this set aside. He dressed like a common servant priest. Linen garments. That was it. And the point is one of humble simplicity. And it reminds me that, you know what, even if we were to show up before God in our finest attire, our best dress, his glory would wash out our most brilliant colors and conduct. It just, it wouldn't even stand up. Everything that we would lay before him as we presented ourselves would pale in comparison to the glory of God. No, we approach him in humble simplicity. We don't approach him in our brilliance. We don't approach him in our successes. We don't approach him dressed to the nines as if we've got it all together. We approach him humbly. And why? Because we are clothed with righteousness that he gives us. Any good thing, any righteous deed, this has been given to me, it is not my own. And so Isaiah 61 verse 10, the prophet said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And one area that I believe the, the kittle, that white robe and sash gets it absolutely right, is in this comparison, the kittle is often traditionally worn under a chuppah, that is, a wedding canopy. I would say that's the right place. Revelation 19, verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is what? It is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we've talked about that, but please don't miss that. 
The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, but the fine linen was given to the bride, which means all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds were given to us to act on and to perform. We didn't come up with this stuff on our own. Romans 3.21 says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. You have been made righteous, you've been given the linen garments like the priest. And speaking, by the way, of those humble linen garments, if we're making comparison and thinking this through, as we will all the way through tonight, when Jesus came into the world, what did he wear? The most basic of human garments he put on skin. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, clothed with simplicity, clothed in humility. He wasn't clothed in his glory. He laid aside those things. And like the high priest going inside the veil on Yom Kippur, he was clothed in simple humility. Second thing to note tonight, not only the clothing of the, of the priest, the clothing of simplicity, but secondly, a cover of blood. A cover of blood, verse three. Aaron shall enter the holy place, again with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then skip down to verse five. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So note that, a bull for a sin offering for the high priest and a ram for a burnt offering for the high priest and then two male goats for the sin offering for the congregation of Israel and one ram for a burnt offering for the congregation of Israel. A ram for the high priest's fam. So it's, it's for his family and for himself that he, he brings the ram. So what God's doing in these early verses is he's saying this is what you're gonna need for the day. Okay, this is what you need to bring. This is how you're preparing now for Yom Kippur to take place. So high priest, you gotta make sure you have a ram. Make sure that with that, you've got the bull. And for the children of Israel, make sure they get two goats, and you're gonna need a ram for the people as well. So the rams, for the high priest and his family, and for the people, the rams are gonna be for the burnt offering that'll be offered at the end of the day, at the, at the last of this. And then a bull for the high priest and his family, and two goats for the congregation, and that will be explained. But let's be clear about this one thing. The only way, the high priest, the high priest, this is, I mean, he's the holiest guy in Israel, right? Right? Wrong. There is no holiest guy in Israel. <laughs> but the high priest in his position, you might look at him as holy and righteous. Boy, I'll tell you what, Annas probably felt that way. No doubt Caiaphas thought he had it going on. But the high priest, to go inside the veil without dying, the only way he could do it was by the blood. He had to bring the blood. Now staying with the priest for a moment, watch this, verse six says, then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Down in verse 11, it's repeated, then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering which is for himself. God is doubling up, making sure you need to understand no priest is to enter in without the sin offering, without the blood. It doesn't matter how long you've been on the job. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. 
how deep in your family line or how impressive you may think you may be, you come in without the blood, you will die. Verse 14 also says, moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, on the east side, that's the entrance. Always remember that, that the tabernacle faces east. So the Bible says it's on the east side, that's the entrance side. So as you're coming in, so on this side is he coming inside the veil, on the mercy seat, that's in front of the mercy seat on the east, and also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger, note this, seven times. Sprinkling the blood seven times. Now obviously, if you study these things, you know seven in the Bible is the number of completion. So there's a picture of a complete cleansing going on, but it's more than that. As Yom Kippur is a picture of the crucifixion, the sprinkled blood is sprinkled seven times just as Jesus' blood flowed from seven places on the cross. Seven places, you can look it up, Matthew 27, verses 25 through 31. The blood flowed from his back when he was scourged. And the blood would flow from his brow when the crown of thorns was crammed down on his head. The blood would flow from the nails which went through both his left and his right hand. The blood would flow from the nail that went through both his right and his left foot, probably one on top of the other. And finally, John witnessed the seventh flow, John 19, 34, when one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, immediately blood and water came out. Sprinkle the blood seven times, the high priest is told and Jesus bled out from seven places. What's the blood about? It is covering. Yom Kippur, a cover of blood. Atonement is that word Kippur. Yom, day, atonement, Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And Kippur means to cover, to cleanse, or to purge. And, and that's a, a good description. Because even when you wash a garment, you're covering it with the soap and the water and the cleansing agents and you're purging it then of the filth, of the pollution that's in it to cover, cleanse, or purge. But Kippur is the same word, you Bible students listen, that was used for the pitch that covered over the entirety of the Ark of Noah. Same word used to cover, that, that kept out. Once that pitch was put around the Ark, it would keep out the flood of judgment. And so what God is saying here, what the picture is with Yom Kippur is you're gonna be covered with the blood that will keep out the judgment that you deserve for the sin. As Paul says in Romans 3, God passed over the sins, you know, done on the present time that he might be a righteous, a righteous judge and father. So atonement, covering, of course, we know that Jesus' blood does far more than just cover from the flood of judgment. Romans chapter five, verse, four, there, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the blood, the blood that covered, the blood that covered against judgment on Yom Kippur is exchanged and it's a shadow because it's exchanged for the blood that keeps out, not only keeps out judgment, but actually goes further, justifies us completely. So there is no reason for judgment because we have made, been made just. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest had to cover himself before he could even think about covering the congregation. Atonement for the priest, 
before atonement for the people. And as we saw on Sunday, it's even more than that. It's not just atonement for the people or the priest. It's atonement for the very tabernacle itself. Look at verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Verse 17, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. That's crazy. Atonement for the altar? What did the altar do wrong? The altar did nothing wrong except sitting in the middle of pollution, except sitting present in the middle of all the sins of the people. So make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all its sides. With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it again seven times and cleanse it from what? From the impurities of the sons of Israel. He will consecrate it. Blood covering. We've been looking about this, kind of hinting at it, even on Sunday, blood covering for the mishkan, that is the tabernacle, the dwelling place. Blood covering for the mercy seat. Blood covering for the altar of sacrifice. Why? Because as we talked about over the last few weeks, Leviticus 11 through 15, the unclean things of the people didn't just affect the people. Just like our sin doesn't just affect ourselves, the worshipers brought their pollution right into the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle had to be cleansed. Yom Kippur saw to that, the cleansing of of the dwelling place. And as I said last week, it's a clean house for the holy God in which to dwell among his people. Now, a lot of this we've kind of been hinting at, talking about, considering as we've come toward Leviticus 16, but there's something else fascinating here that was required for the high priest to enter inside the veil. Go back to verse 12. And I'm jumping around a little bit because I'm looking at these things thematically, but the Lord provides the direct uh, schedule of things for Yom Kippur if you just read through the chapter straight through. But back in verse 12 of chapter 16, it says, he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. So right there, fascinating, a sweet cloud of incense. A cloud of incense, that's number three. He has to bring a cloud of incense as he comes to bring the covering of blood before he can even do the work. He's gotta have a cloud of incense that is between him and the mercy seat or he will die. Even if he has the blood, bring the sweet incense. That's got to be going on as well. It's hazy and cloudy in there, why? It's believed by some that it kept the high priest from gazing directly on the holy presence. 
that there was at least a veil there of sorts. Though he came inside the veil, still there was some protection from his eyes actually gazing full on the glory of God, on the Shekinah glory that was there present in the Holy of Holies. In the scriptures, incense, I know where some of your hearts will immediately go with incense. We'll get there in a second, but incense can do something. It can avert God's wrath. We're gonna see that happen in a tense moment coming up in the book of Numbers when we get to that study. And by the way, that's a fascinating study. But as we get into that, Numbers chapter 16 tells of a moment when the people are rebelling, they're upset once again at Moses and at Aaron, they're complaining. And number 1646, Moses says to Aaron, take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it and bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. God tells Moses because of this grumbling and complaining of the people, he says, I'm wiping them out, that's it. And Moses says, Aaron, get the incense. <laughs> and he brings it. And we're told in Numbers 16, 48, Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living and the plague was checked. I don't have time tonight to go into that story. We're close enough that probably we'll get there before Jesus comes, although maybe not. But number 16, we see a plague checked by the incense offered by Aaron. A sweet cloud of incense, perhaps to avert judgment, to, to stay off God's wrath, but more often than not, you Bible students, you know, incense in the Bible speaks of one thing. What is it? It's prayer, prayer. Psalm 141, verse two. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. I love that because that speaks of the heart behind the ritual. So often people get caught up in the ritual and forget the heart, the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we sing the songs we sing? Why do we take the communion we take? Why do we go through these motions? Don't go through the motions. Let the motions simply be an expression of what's going on in the heart. My prayers like incense. My lifting of my hands like the evening offering. Or Isaiah chapter 56 verse seven where the Lord, speaking of foreigners and outsiders, so not even Jewish people, speaking of Gentiles, says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The temple, God's designation for the temple, a house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, not only for Israel. That all the peoples would be able to come into this place and there be in the sweet house of prayer. You could say that it was the sweet incense of prayer that made the offerings acceptable. That as the priest would come and offer up prayerful requests and petitions and thanksgivings before the Lord, that it set the right heart for then the offerings to be received. And somewhere down the line, that got missed. That was forgotten, that this was to be a house of prayer. Jesus came on the scene, Luke 19, 46, said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Think about this, prayer is central to the house. 
Prayer is central to the house, to the house of God, to the temple, absolutely, but I say to this house as well, to this house of worship, prayer is simple. And prayer is central, that's what I meant to say. Prayer is central. Think about that because there are people who will come into this place and they'll say, yeah, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just not experiencing God there. You wanna experience God? Why don't you talk to him? For you and for me, one of the most important things we can do when we gather, during worship, through worship, even through teaching, pray. God puts something on your heart as you're reading his word, and it may completely be a rabbit trail from where I'm at. You've ever found yourself in that place? Wait, what's he talking about? <laughs> I'm sure that never happens here. But you find yourself over here in another place, and God is showing you something, and he's touched your heart with something. Pray. Talk to him about it. Let this be a house of prayer because when prayer is forgotten, the offerings don't work really well. The presence is missed. Prayer is central to the house because prayer is the primary way we experience presence. And I want to speak to that for a second because I was sharing today, I was talking earlier with, with some of our staff that, you know, sometimes we can say presence. And people can misunderstand what we mean by that. We say, oh yeah, it's Sunday morning. We just really felt presence. We're not talking about the force. You know, we're not talking about some obscure, ghostly, ephemeral thing. Oh, the presence. No, no. When we pray, we are in direct communication with our Savior. That's presence. I mean, look at it this way. Your cell phone rings, you don't pick it up and go, ooh, I feel your aura. <laughs> no, you're, but the presence is there. Cheryl calls me up on the phone and I'm talking with her on the phone, I might as well be right there face to face. It's presence. When Cheryl was in Ghana for a month, earlier this fall, all I needed was to hear her voice and I felt her presence, not some ghostly weird thing like she was transported over and present in front of me, but that connection, that, that human relational connection that is so important to us. And that's what God wants. In fact, that's what Yom Kippur's about. That's what the crucifixion's about. Getting a little ahead of myself, but that's kind of the point of the whole thing is his presence. To make a way for him to be present with us, for us to be aware of him and present with him. And prayer is the, it's the, the direct line. It's how we get there. It, it's our communion with God. I mean, especially if you are close to the person calling. As I mentioned to my wife, I'm close to her. I have a relationship with her that's deeper than any other. So when she calls, there's a connection there just in hearing her voice. Presence comes of prayer. God says, I want my house to be a house of prayer. Why, Lord? Because I want to be communicating. Because I want you to hear me even as I am hearing from you. And by the way, it's two-way, this whole idea of God's presence and the house of prayer and the sweet incense. See, Romans 8, 24 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So as my prayers go up as sweet incense, Jesus is offering incense to the Father and praying for us. Kind of how it works. Jesus says, look, you pray to me and I'll pray for you. Hebrews 7, 25. He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Prayer's not a bummer or a drag for Jesus. It's, it's, 
It's sharing you with the Father. John 16, 23, he said, in that day you will not question me about anything. I think he says that because the apostles were always asking questions. Well, what about this, Lord? What do you mean by that? I don't understand this. He says, you know what, in that day the questions are gonna stop. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Note that. They had asked a lot of questions, but they hadn't asked for anything in his name. He says, ask and you'll receive so that your joy will be made full. So Jesus invites us into the house of prayer like sweet incense and that covering of incense is our covering of prayer. We even use that phrase sometimes. I really need some prayer cover. I need some thick incense to fill this room, to fill this place. I need to know you're praying for me so that I've got that cloud of incense around me covering me. And that is our prayers to the Lord. So Yom Kippur, a a clothing that is simple, humble, a covering of blood and a cloud of sweet incense as in prayer. And we come to now the heart of Yom Kippur, the scapegoat, and this is fascinating. Go back now to verse seven, and I'm gonna get a little weird. I'm just gonna warn you ahead of time. I'm gonna offer you some weird ideas. I know they're weird. I'm gonna present them honestly as weird, and some of you are weird enough to receive them. So Leviticus 16, verse seven, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which a lot for, or the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now, that doesn't sound too weird. Okay, one goat is offered, one is kicked out. Pretty simple, right? The offered goat and then the live goat, the scapegoat. But the translation is what is tricky. And if we just read it as it was written, then you would not see the word scapegoat. You would see the word Azazel. Azazel. And it would read like this. Note this. Aaron is to cast lots, and they would do this. They would take two little pieces of paper. They would write on one for the Lord. They would write on the other, or parchment, or animal skin, whatever they used. They would write on the other one for Azazel. One is for the Lord. One says, for Yahweh, La Yahweh in the Hebrew. La Azazel in the Hebrew. And the goats would be brought up, and they'd lay their hand on one goat, they'd pick one. This one is La Yahweh for Yahweh. Pick the other one. This one is La Azazel. This one's for Azazel. For Azazel. Who is Azazel? And this is where it gets weird. (laughs) According to the book of Enoch. Now, some right now might say, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's not the Bible. I understand that. However, what's interesting is both Peter and Jude refer to the book of Enoch, lending it some credibility. And I've shared this before. If you've never read the book of Enoch, it's fascinating, and it's something that I would read along the same lines as the history of the Christian church. Is it inspired scripture? No. Is it of historical value? Yes. And both Peter and Jude reference 
the book of Enoch, and in the book of Enoch, Azazel, A-Z-A-Z-E-L, Azazel was the name of a demon. A demon who, one verse, Enoch chapter eight, verse one, uh, says that he taught weaponry and forging of steel to mankind on the earth. In other words, taught the implements of warfare. And another verse, uh, Enoch chapter nine, verse six, refers to Azazel stirring up unrighteousness on the earth, this demonic presence named Azazel. Now, I'm not here to argue or debate over whether or not Azazel is a true demonic presence. I'm just giving you what people consider and think about here when they look at this, what we've often thought of, or I've thought my whole life, is just the scapegoat. No, it's the Azazel. One for La Yahweh, the other one for La Azazel. And so, is this a demon? Is it possible that it's a demon? And the way it's written certainly sounds like this is for Yahweh, this is for Azazel, and Azazel seems to be a persona. In fact, the, the whole idea, there's a little, that law before Yahweh and the law before Azazel in Hebrew is a preposition, which literally means for, and it's always followed in the Hebrew by a person, for Yahweh, for Azazel. Does that mean, possibly, as some wonder, is that the hands are laid on the goats, and one goat then is offered up to the Lord, a blood offering, and the other one is an offering to a demon? And the answer is, no. (laughs) Not at all. For one thing, the second goat is not offered. The second goat is driven out alive. So a sacrifice is not made in the goat that is Azazel. So even if Azazel is a demon, and I'm not saying one way or the other because I don't have any more than what I'm telling you right now, but even if Azazel was a demonic presence, a demon back in the day, still this was not an offering for so much as to the place where Azazel resides, the wilderness. So consider it that way. In fact, it's, it's interesting The blood of the first goat is for the atonement of the people. And then with the second goat, God actually removes and and replaces the idea of sacrificing to goat demons that was going on in Israel at this very time. This lends some credibility to the idea of Azazel being demonic because the people would slip outside of the camp and make these secret offerings to get this the equivalent of what we would call satyrs. S-A-T-Y-R, satyrs. You know those little goat people in Greek mythology and, and, and the rest? They were going out and making blood offerings to goat demons. How do you know that? Leviticus chapter 17, look at verse seven, where God says they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. And God does here what he often does. He takes this pagan idea and he says, nope, we're not doing that anymore. We're gonna drive this out. Blood of the goat offering that has to be offered there at the tabernacle. And that blood actually brought into, for the people, for atonement brought into the holy of holies and sprinkled there the seven times and then out on the altar as we read. But the other one, drive it out, drive it out. If the scapegoat 
Azazel truly does refer to a demon, then this simply is saying that the live goat, again, is sent out into the wilderness realm that this demon inhabits, one for Azazel. And that has some more backing in scripture. Actually, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 43, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, arid places, dry wilderness places, seeking rest and does not find it. I don't know why, but something about demons wants to go to the desert. (laughs) So perhaps this Azazel, if it was a demonic presence, that was the abode, that was the realm, if you will. That's where it lived. And so send the goat out to that demonic presence, send the goat out into the wilderness. Now that's one possibility. There are some others. The Hebrew word Azazel is also, it's a name in the book of Enoch for that demon. It's also a Hebrew noun, a rare noun, it's not used often, but it means complete destruction. One lamb is, or one goat is offered la Yahweh for the Lord, the other one is, is offered for complete destruction driven out. Another translation that some of the rabbis, in fact, the Mishnah uses this translation for Azazel, rocky precipice, that one is for sacrifice to the Lord, the other one is driven out to the rocky precipice, and they believed it so much that one of the practices was that the goat was led off to a steep cliff and pushed over backwards to kill it. One for Azazel, the rocky precipice. Another way to look at it, and I, this is, of all the possibilities, this is the one that I lean toward the most, and that is if you take the Hebrew word Azazel and look at it as a compound word, which it is, you've got two Hebrew words, Aza and Zel. And Aza in the Hebrew means goat, and Zel means gone, goat gone. Goat gone! With their sin atoned for for by the the sacrifice goat, now it is visibly driven off to say to the people visibly, goat gone. Your sin is gone. Your guilt has been removed. You might say as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. That graphic illustration, one of sacrifice, the other of, of what's wrong, of transgression and sin and iniquity, driven out not to return. And by the way, that ties well into the meaning that we read when we go further down in Leviticus 16. Skip down to verse 20. And for all our dancing around, I guarantee you we will have covered every verse in Leviticus 16 tonight. But verse 20 says, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. So he's already now offered the dead goat. He's he's slayed that goat. And now the Live goat is offered, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And some Jewish writings even say they had people posted so it went from one to the next to the next until finally the last guy said, he's gone. (laughs) Driven out into the wilderness. And verse 22 says, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. A solitary land, a getzerah eretz. Eretz is that Hebrew word for land. 
So like Israel today is called Eretz Israel, land of Israel. That's the technical name for the state of Israel. So this is now the Gezerah Eretz. Gezerah, that's translated here solitary. A solitary place means separated or, or cut off. A closed off place. It could be used to describe a, a valley surrounded by steep climbs that there's no way to get out of. The idea is a place of no return. And so this Azazel, goat gone, sent out, driven out to a place that it could not return to the people. It could not make its way back to camp. Listen, you want your sin gone? You wanna know that your sin is gone with no chance of return? Then pay attention to what it was the high priest did when he laid his hands on the live goat's head. In verse 21 again, it says, he confessed over it all the iniquities and transgressions and sin. Number four in your notes. Here on Yom Kippur, we see a confession for the dismissal of sin. This is huge. It's not just an offering made ritualistically. Yeah, they took care of it, blood there, blood there, blood there. Most of the people wouldn't even see it because they wouldn't be inside the veil. Those who could look in the outer tent of the tabernacle and see what was going there in the courtyard might see the, the priest sprinkling the blood on the altar. Most wouldn't see that. So the, the goat slain and the blood and all that taken care of, yeah, we know that's going on in there, but now he takes this live goat, lays his hand on its head and begins to confess the people's sin, the sin of the congregation. He confesses aloud before the Lord and transfers, and we've talked about this, the laying on of hands is a picture of transferring something. In this case, the high priest is now transferring the sin of the people onto this goat, and this goat is gonna be gone, sin gone, iniquity gone, transgression gone by confession. And note this, is such a beautiful picture. Jesus did both. He did both. First, like the goat that is offered up, the goat that gives its blood, the goat that is killed first, he made propitiation for our sins by his blood. That happened first. Then second, we receive that propitiation through confession. We come to him confessing our sins before him and receive the blood that he has already shed for us. So even the order, you kill the one and then you place the confession of sin on the other and drive it away. Romans 10, verse nine, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, done deal. It's one of the most profound and solid verses in the Bible. Well, they're all solid, but that is so clear. You wanna be saved? You wanna know you've got eternal life? Man, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Done, you're saved. You are saved in the moment. That's just awesome to me, how powerful, how profound to realize through that moment of faith, you now have eternity secure out before you. And Paul went on to say, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, remember the righteousness, the fine linen, bright and clean, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Drive it off, man. Without confession, there really is no reception. If I can't confess my sin, I'm not gonna receive blood covering for it. 
It is in the act of confession that I am receiving the sacrifice of Jesus, that I am believing in the sacrifice of Jesus, which is why confession becomes such a profoundly necessary thing, not only for salvation, but also in the life of a follower of Jesus. And to say this, that we above all people should be able to confess anything to each other without fear of reprisal, without concern that someone's gonna have some attitude about us or think poorly of us from now. If I tell them that, they're never gonna look at me the same way twice. I've told people, man, it's just part of my job. Nothing I hear surprises me. Nothing. You know, I, I've had people sit in my office and go, well, you know, Rick, I gotta tell you something. And you're just not gonna believe it. And then they tell me, and I'm like, huh, that's the third time I've heard that this week. <laughs> There's nothing surprising because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have made a mess of things. All of us need the blood of Jesus for our propitiation, for our salvation. So as we confess to one another, man, we need to get our heads around the idea that confession is cleansing, that confession is fellowship. And then if we're not able to confess, then we're really not able to receive. But when we confess, oh, the air clears, the heart is cleansed, the price was paid. Note that the price was paid. The blood spilled seven ways at the altar of the cross. But until we confess, the blood really isn't received. And so again, we read 1 John 1, 9. We've heard this over and over. If we confess our sin or our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, lay your hands on the head of that goat and send him packing. Confess your sin and let Jesus drive it away. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering. That is, remember the burnt offering that's just for Aaron and his family, and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Verse 25, then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and then afterward he shall come into the camp as well. And so, at this point, we come to what I would call the cleanup work of Yom Kippur. This is kind of the final things that need to be taken care of before all of, the, all of the ritual is completed. The major aspect's done. So the high priest now, with all the other stuff done, before the burnt offering, he goes into the mikvah bath, a full immersion washing. There are only two times in the priest's life that this happens. The first time is only once, and that's at his ordination. Once he's ordained, he's ordained a priest, that's it. But he has a full mikvah at his ordination. The second time is Yom Kippur. Annually, the priest gets baptized. Annually, he gets fully immersed. At the end of the day, he is washed. And of course, then we see the, the guy who, who led the goat out, same thing. He goes through the full mikvah washing. But the priest, after washing, now comes forward and he offers the burnt offerings for himself. Number five in your notes, we see now a clean devotion. A clean devotion. 
The burnt offering, I repeat to you, was a symbol of absolute, total devotion to the Lord because the entire offering was burnt up on the altar. Nothing was left. Nothing was to be eaten by the priest or anyone else. Nothing was taken out and dumped outside the camp. All burned 100% on the fire of the altar, speaking of complete devotion. It's a beautiful picture. And it follows on everything that we've said so far, that this covering of blood and our confession for sin, and now we've got this, this clean devotion to the Lord. Listen, you trust in Jesus, you follow God, not because you're trying to prove to him that you can get into his heaven. You're devoted to him because he's already got you in. Our devotion comes from the place of our cleanness, not from the place of proving. That's different than any other religion on the face of the earth. Every other one, you gotta prove yourself. Every other one, you've got to follow through with certain acts or behaviors or rituals. And if you don't do that, you might not make it. But with Jesus, you believe, you confess, you trust in him, and you're clean. Therefore, your devotion is clean because you're not proving anything. You're just devoted because you love him. That's the way he wants it, a clean devotion. By the way, the full mikvah washing that we see here and in other places in the Older Testament scriptures was a precursor to baptism. Baptism was not new with Jesus. It was not new with John the Baptist. Could have called him John the mikvah because that's where it came from. And the Jewish people going out to be baptized by John, this was not a unique thing. This, oh yeah, okay, it's a mikvah cleansing. And Jesus took it and handed it over, you know, basically transcribed it, if you will, for the church to portray not us cleansing ourselves to be ready for God, but us cleansing ourselves because he has already cleansed us. So he turns it around, he says, no, you are clean by the word I have spoken. You're clean because I make you clean. Now I'm gonna command you to be baptized so the world can see this is what I've already done. The symbol now becomes secondary. The shadow becomes secondary, if you will, to the substance, and the substance is our faith in Jesus. And the picture then is baptism that follows. Well, the full washing, a clean devotion, verse 27 says, but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. And they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Verse 28, then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, a mikvah cleansing. And then afterward, he shall come into the camp. So this is number six in your notes, a condemnation outside the camp. There is one final condemnation here at the end of Yom Kippur, at the end of the day, a significant one. It's outside the camp. As the flesh and the hides and the, and the refuse, all the guts and the leftover stuff that wasn't offered up is now taken out from those sin offerings and is burned up completely outside the camp. Note this, the high priest doesn't do it. Another person does. Well, the high priest didn't crucify Jesus either, did he? Others did that. He pronounced it, he proclaimed it, he called for it, but others would lead 
Jesus outside. Jesus just in all of these offerings, every aspect of the offerings ultimately is fulfilled and portrayed in Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, as he was taken outside the camp of Jerusalem and he was offered there, Hebrews 13, 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And we've talked about that recently. We go outside the camp bearing his reproach. That is, we go to Jesus and we bear the reproach of the gospel. The reproach of the gospel, yeah, the gospel, the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus. Man, we wear that. We bring that. That is our message to the world. He died for you. He bled out for you that by faith in him you can be saved. It's a simple message, but profound. And now, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus was condemned outside the camp. Just as the sin offering is a, a final offering, a condemnation that takes place outside the camp. Verse 29, so now God will sum up Verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And this is so significant. This, this is highly personal, so listen up. The word humble, note that it's used twice here. In verse 29, you shall humble your souls. In verse 31, again, humble your souls on this day, on the day of atonement. The word humble is another rare word in the Hebrew. It's not used much in the Bible, about four or five times. And when it's used, the word te'anu. Te'anu is the word right here in, in verses 29 and, and in verse 31, as he uses the word twice, and this word te'anu here, the root word is anah, and anah means humble as it's translated, but some of your Bibles might translate it afflict, afflict. You are to afflict yourselves on this day. Again, the word is very rare. It's used of Yom Kippur here in chapter 16. It's repeated again in Leviticus 23, verses 27 and 32. So you see the word, there's another two more times, so that's four times that it's used. It's used again, speaking of Yom Kippur, in Numbers 29, verse six, so that's five times that we see the same word used. And it, it speaks of to afflict oneself. And we say the word humble, but afflict is really a better word for it, for, for anah, or uh, yeah, anah, for te'anu here, to afflict yourself. How do we go about that? I mean, you know, you, you see monks with the, with the lashes, lashing themselves. Martin Luther was famous for it. Man, he afflicted himself. One night stayed out all night long in the freezing rain and snow to, to punish himself for his sin thoughts. And that, you know, people can get so weird with this stuff. God afflict myself. Listen, you're missing the point. The idea of affliction here, look at it biblically. Psalm 35, verse 13, the word is used again. My clothing was sackcloth 
and I afflicted my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. That doesn't mean it returned unanswered. That means it kept coming to me over and over. As I afflicted myself, I denied myself, and my prayers kept returning, and I kept on praying, and that's the right heart. And the idea that's being expressed here for Yom Kippur, which honestly makes it different than any other feast of Israel, wasn't even a feast, it was a fast. They feasted the day before. But for this fast, the idea was to have a sober, honest, heartfelt realization of our sin and of my need for the blood. We talked about on Sunday, remember, there was the AM offering, the PM offering, there were the five different offerings, there were the specific offerings for uncleanness. I mean, they were offering all the time. You'd think eventually they'd go, okay, enough, there's enough blood, we're covered but Yom Kippur comes around once a year and they're reminded for all of that, you're still uncovered. You're still sinful. You've polluted my very house. So afflict yourselves. Don't just go through the religious motions. This should affect us. Years ago, I I mentioned this. I remember sitting in in a church and this was back in Virginia and it was during communion, and I'm looking around judging everyone. <laughs> judge the body rightly, right? We're supposed to judge. So I was judging the body. I'm like, well, that guy's not paying attention. That guy's not into this. Well, what's wrong with him? What's going on with her? Singing these songs and passing around communion, and I looked over my shoulder, and there was a, a senior saint, a sister. I barely knew her. I'd been introduced. I knew who she was, but didn't really know much about her. Communion was passed to her, and I I was watching her because tears were streaming down her face. And it really moved me, because I'm like, okay, she gets it. And suddenly I realized I wasn't getting it, because I was judging everybody for not getting it. We should feel something here. This should have impact. This should afflict us at, at some level an emotional affliction, a somber realization of what Jesus did at the cross, when we talk about the cross, when we take communion together, when we sing of the crucifixion, when we recognize the death of Jesus, that should break our hearts. There should be some sense of affliction in it. And so that root word to afflict, afflict yourselves on this day, humble yourselves, get real with what's going on here. But the word afflict is also used in another place of divine judgment. And if you look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, or just listen up, the people are asking a question. They say, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And the word is afflict. We've afflicted ourselves. You told us to afflict ourselves, so we afflicted ourselves. We made life hard on ourselves. God responds, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. Pause right there, listen to me. I gotta say something here. And I'm just saying this out to whoever's listening. There is a problem in the church when we are more intent on striking one another than on helping one another. Someone's not doing something the way you want it done. How about you come alongside them and help them be successful? 
How about instead of being so judgmental as can happen in the church, and again, I've seen a lot of it this season, sadly. How about we say, you're my brother, and I may not see it the way you do, but I'm gonna walk with you. And if you're struggling, I'm gonna help you. And if you're not doing it the way I'm doing it, I'm gonna come alongside, and we're gonna do this together. See, there's a word for that in the Bible, too. It's called grace. And we could use a little more grace in the church today. God says, you think you're so holy, you're so righteous, you're fasting for contention and strife, striking with a wicked fist. And he says, you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. That is not how it works. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble or to afflict himself? Your affliction, your humility is not about you, he says. Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? And when you see the naked, cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. In other words, do it the way I do it. You see someone struggling, don't strike. Give grace. You see someone in the midst of hardship, step in and help. You see someone making a mess of things, how about getting down on your hands and knees and helping them clean it up? That's the heart of Jesus. That's what the church is supposed to be about. But instead, we have this different view of humility and affliction people afflicting themselves. Listen, the affliction of Yom Kippur was not to distance the people from God in their, you know, humble state. It wasn't to prove how pathetic they were. It was so that they might understand God's intentions toward them all along. And I'm gonna read this, and it may not seem like it applies, but listen. God's intentions. Here it is. Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God's intention. God with us. Matthew 1.23, Emmanuel shall be his name, which translated means God with us. This is the point of the whole thing. It is the point of Yom Kippur. It is the point of the crucifixion. God with us. God doing everything that we couldn't do to come alongside us, to save us, to cleanse us, to bear us up, even in our poor state. God with us. Now listen to me, I'm almost done, but you gotta catch this, this idea of affliction. And I, I realize looking at this today, man, this is, a, this is a teaching in and of itself. So I say to you, if you remember two things tonight, remember that Yom Kippur is about the crucifixion and remember what I'm gonna tell you right now. You can forget everything else. Azazel, doesn't matter. Affliction. There are three afflictions. Three afflictions 
Three afflictions. Jake asked me a question earlier today. He said, now, is that interpretation or application? Good question. No, good question. Always ask that. Are we making a biblical interpretation or is this just Rick kind of going off on a tangent making application? This is all interpretation. This is biblical sound even more than we talked about. So check this out. Three afflictions. Three afflictions. Affliction number one, Yom Kippur. It's a day of affliction, a day of sober realization in all these offerings. It was not a day of celebration like the other feasts. It was not a party day. It was not a day of joyful, glad shouting. It was serious. It was sober. And it was a day to really recognize their deep depravity and their need for God, a day of affliction. And Jews today will even refer to it as the day of atonement or the day of affliction, Yom Kippur. But remember what I said when we started, Yom Kippur is a shadow of the crucifixion, which is the second affliction, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Turn over to Psalm 88, Psalm 88. I'll only make you turn one other place tonight, but this is so vital to our faith. Yom Kippur, the day of affliction, of atonement, Jesus on the cross, watch this, it's the next time we see the word affliction used in the Hebrew scriptures. It's right here in the title of Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director according to Mahalat Leonot, a masculine of Heman, the Ezraite. All you need to know here is Mahalat means writhing and Leonot means with affliction. This is a psalm sung with the attitude, with the heart of writhing with affliction. It is the singularly darkest of all the psalms. It is set in a pit of sorrow. It is the only psalm that does not end with a, with a song of praise. This one ends in the dark. And we talked about it this summer because it is one of the savior psalms. This psalm speaks of Jesus. I don't have time to do it all tonight, but it was a teaching psalm of this He-Man, the Ezraite. Not He-Man, master of the universe, but He-Man, the Ezraite. Come on. And, and he used this as a teaching psalm to teach of the history of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit, right? But it prophetically speaks powerfully of Jesus. And if you really want to get into that, go back and listen to the Savior psalm that we did on Psalm 88 this past summer. And it'll be explained to you. But Psalm 88, verse one, remember, mahalat leonot, leonot, the root word is anah, it's to afflict. It is writhing in affliction. And he says, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more and they are cut off from your hand and it goes on. This dark psalm is all about the affliction of Jesus. And in that psalm, before we even leave the Hebrew scriptures, we see this picture of Jesus at trial, of Jesus in the pit. We believe the pit in Caiaphas' home as he's being tried unjustly, the innocent man, and then ultimately taken off to Calvary where he was crucified. 
the affliction of Christ. Affliction of Yom Kippur, portrayed, fulfilled in the affliction of the crucifixion. Philippians 2.5 tells us, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Remember what I said, clothed in humility, clothed in simplicity, the word became flesh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is the ultimate affliction. Yom Kippur, the day of affliction, afflict yourselves, portraying the day when Jesus would be ultimately afflicted in a way none of us can even imagine. Think you've had a hard life. Think you've had a hard week or a hard day. We have no idea. No idea what it means to bear the entire sin of humanity on our shoulders as Jesus did at the cross. The affliction of the crucifixion foreshadowed by the affliction of Yom Kippur, but there's a third. One more affliction. And it's an affliction that comes if the cross is denied. The Greek word for affliction is thlipsis. It's hard to say. T-H-L, thlipsis, I-P-S-I-S, thlipsis. <laughs> it's a word that is translated affliction and it is translated tribulation. Matthew 24, verse nine, they will then deliver you to Flipsis, tribulation, affliction, and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there will be a great flipsis, a great affliction, a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now put this together, get this. Yom Kippur, day of atonement, day of affliction, is preceded by Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. 10 days earlier, the people celebrate joyfully the day of trumpets. Now it's become the civil holiday of Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. But Yom Teruah, the biblical name, is the day of trumpets. And that day happens first, and then the affliction. The day of trumpets, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We're going up, we're going home. What a day that will be. And this is a day that is imminent. As I've said so many times over the years, nothing on God's prophetic calendar needs to happen before that takes place. Everything's done. Yom Teruah. That trumpet's gonna sound, my friends, and we will go up. But soon after that, then comes the affliction, the tribulation. Book of Revelation indicates very clearly the rapture will happen and that will be followed then by a time of affliction that the world has never seen before, the tribulation, the thlipsis. And just as the blood was sprinkled seven times at the mercy seat, seven times at the altar, Jesus fulfilling all of that bled from seven places on the cross, guess what? So this world is going to go through seven years of intense worldwide wrath. And yes, blood will be spilt, not clean, pure, saving blood, but the unclean blood of man will be spilt during that time of affliction. Yet, 
at the end of it all, remarkably, miraculously, brilliantly, all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six reads, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. People say, how is that possible? All Israel, are they saved because they're Jewish? No, they're saved because they believe in Jesus. All Israel, and I believe that references specifically all Israel standing alive at the end of the tribulation, which Zechariah 13 tells us it's gonna be one third that will be left. God says, I'm gonna bring you through the fire. Two-thirds will perish, but one-third will come through the fire. And they will see Jesus coming on the clouds, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, Zechariah chapter 12. And they will be saved. All Israel will be saved as the deliverer comes from Zion, removes the ungodliness, and saves his people, finishing that promise to them with one final thing, and that is the kingdom, which then comes next. On God's prophetic calendar, Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpet, Rosh Hashanah, actually the day of atonement, Rosh Hashanah is Yom Teruah, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, next, the time of affliction. And after that, after that, Sukkot, the feast of tabernacles. And it's marvelous because this day of prayer and fasting and affliction ultimately yields one final thing, and watch this, back in Leviticus 16, and we are almost done, hang with me. Leviticus 16, 31, which reads, it is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. This is number seven in your notes, a complete rest. It is literally, the words here, it's a Shabbat Shabbaton. A Shabbat Shabbaton. A Sabbath of Sabbath. A Sabbath among Sabbaths. This phrase, Shabbat Shabbaton, is used to describe the sabbatical year. The seventh year that was supposed to be taken off, where the land was supposed to rest and they never kept it, but it was given to them. The Shabbat Shabbaton, a complete Sabbath, a complete rest. It's also used the same thing on Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, Shabbat Shabbaton. It's a day of complete rest. I'll tell you what, that day I'm taking a nap. No, I'm gonna rest like I've never rested before. You're exhausted, you're weary, you're worn out from the world. Guess what? We will be caught up, we'll be with Jesus, and for the first time, we're gonna know what it's like to be at rest. It's all done. All done. Can you even imagine the peace of that moment? No more bills to pay. No more appointments to keep. No more household items like our refrigerator door that needs replacing. No more breakdowns of our vehicles. No more relational conflicts. All of the things that wear us out and exhaust us through the day and through life. No more COVID. And I told myself I wasn't even gonna use this stupid word in this teaching. No more of the things that wear us. No, we're before the Lord in complete rest. Yom Teruah. But Shabbat Shabbaton is also used of the first and the last days of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which the Bible tells us we will celebrate year to year in the Millennial Kingdom. 
Zechariah 14, 16. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the feast of Sukkot. Sukkot, that feast that on the first day, it's a Shabbat Shabbaton, a day of complete rest. And on the last day of the feast, Shabbat Shabbaton, a day of complete rest. The world's gonna know rest like it never has before. And we're gonna talk about that more when we get to Leviticus 23. But let's finish this. Think about it. What was it that Jesus called himself relating to this whole thing? Matthew 12, 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That Jesus, he is our complete rest. He's the complete rest. You know, it's hard to sleep on a dirty bed. You ever have crackers in bed and you try and go to sleep in there? Or chips or something? You're going, Rick, you eat in bed? Yes, I do. (laughs) I love clean sheet night. No chips. Man, I'm giving way too much personal information lately. I don't know. It's hard to rest on a dirty bed. It is hard to rest when you're grungy and you're grimy and you're unclean. End of the day, you're all filthy, dirty. Who wants to climb into bed and go to sleep like that? Get a shower, man. Clean it up. And then, and then you can be at rest. It's really hard to be at peace when you're morally filthy, morally compromised, and you know it. That's the thing about humanity. Followers of Jesus are not. When you're morally compromised, you know. You know, I mean, unless your conscience has been completely seared, you know you're dirty. And it's really hard to be at rest when you're dirty. For Israel, the Lord established Yom Kippur as this permanent annual statute. But it's one that was intended to lead them, even as it's led us tonight, right up to the cross. Verse 32 of chapter 16, which says, the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary and make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall also make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly clean sheet night. The people are clean. The tabernacle is clean. The altar is clean. For that moment at the end of Yom Kippur, every year, everything was clean. And it brings us again to the cross. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. Man, if any sin was missed through the year, this gets it. And you are clean. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. What does it take for Emmanuel? That is, what does it take for God to be with us? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's very simple. Yom Kippur is the shadow of the true substance. And the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we take the extra time tonight because this is so significant. An affliction, a day of sober realization of the depth of depravity and sin that goes before beyond all comprehension, sin that is not even realized until this day once a year when the people would realize, even if I don't remember 
I'm still unclean. And even by my very presence, the tabernacle unclean, a day of affliction. But you, Jesus, took the affliction of the world on your shoulders at the cross. No affliction before or after has ever been like that. And yet you have made it clear, Lord, that if we reject the cross, there is but one affliction that is left, a time of tribulation for this world, for a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. Father, I pray that tonight, if there is anyone who hears this message and they have not yielded to Jesus, have not confessed their need, have not come to the cross, where all of sin has been borne on your shoulders. I pray it would happen tonight. Let this be the day of new life for somebody, Father, so that affliction can be removed forever. Lord Jesus, remind us that you have made us clean. As the Hebrew writer says, we don't return year after year after year to the same sacrifice over and over and over, which cannot take away sin because you came to the cross and once for all you took it. We praise you and we thank you and we are devoted to you from a clean place, Lord, because you have cleansed us again once and for all. Let me just read this to you as, as a conclusion to this prayer. Hebrews verse, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. Lord, this is the key. As we see the day drawing near and we see the day drawing near, more in this season than ever before in our lives, we see the day drawing near when the trumpet will sound and we will know complete rest. Oh Lord, make us ready. In Jesus' name.